Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us at Back to the Bible Canada. On our final message of the week, we continue Dr. Neufeld's series, This is Our God. And today we'll look at the subject of God Almighty. So let's begin. I was a student in university when I first encountered an atheistic philosophy professor. I remember being curious. I mean, what would he say? What would he believe? Is there something he knew that I didn't know? Would I start to doubt my faith as a result of being in his class? How did he arrive at his positions? Did he start out as an atheist? Or maybe he started out as a believer of some kind, and then he learned something that made him abandon his belief in God. I wondered if he'd be aggressive, or would he respect those who were Christians? What had he read that had influenced him? I don't think I was worried about going to his class, but I do remember being genuinely curious. All in all, the experience in his class was, well, it was somewhat benign. He wasn't like some condescending and aggressive and ready to take on ignorant Christians in his class, but he was scholarly and yet he was assertive and I didn't find him menacing and he was thoughtful. I shouldn't have been surprised after all, he like me was made in the image of God. I do recall when he first talked about the impossibility of the God idea. He thought the arguments for God all consisted of either circular reasoning or they began with indefensible premises. It was fascinating to me because he never dealt with the deeds of God in history or what God was in Jesus. Rather, for him, God was a matter of human reason. I do remember that he believed the problem of evil was insurmountable for theists. Those were his words. You know, as I think about the class now, I actually think the problem of evil is insurmountable for atheists, but that's another matter. When it came to the idea of an all-powerful being that existed, my professor said that regardless of whether you believe in God or not, the idea that anyone or anything can be all-powerful is a logical impossibility. You are better off, so he thought, to believe in a deity of limited power. You know, it was in his class that I first encountered the argument that I then thought was just silly. Can God create a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? But my professor explained that if God can't, well, then he's not all-powerful. And if he can, he's no longer all-powerful. But in any case, said my professor, such an idea, that is, the idea of omnipotence is a logically unsustainable idea. You know, I've, I've thought about that. And as I've trained myself to do, I asked myself what the Bible actually says about such a thing. How does the Bible describe the power of God? See, I was less interested in the logical possibilities of the hypothetical, philosophical God of my professor. I was interested in the power of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of David, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible. What does God tell us about his own power? What kind of power does he have, and how does he use that power? And for us, as human beings whose power is limited, how are we to respond to the all-powerful God? So let's begin with Psalm 24, verse 8. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. One of the areas described in the Bible in which God displays his power is when God goes to war against his enemies. You know, after God devastated Egypt with ten plagues, and after the Red Sea closed in on the armies of Egypt, Exodus 15 tells us that Moses and the people of Israel sang this song. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. 
See, in our day, some of us find the idea of a God armed for battle to be offensive, but that's clearly how the Bible describes God. In Psalm 68, verse 1, we read, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. And so God's power is seen in that no enemy is able to withstand him. He defeats all his foes. He wins all his battles. Often in describing God's role in battle, the phrase, the Lord of hosts, is used. It's an image of God leading a great company in battle as their commander and leader, leading his armies into victory. Consider Isaiah 13, verse 4. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. You know, this idea that the Lord is like a mighty man of war is reinforced on numerous occasions. It was God who brought down the walls of Jericho. God who stopped the sun in the sky so Israel would win the great battle. David said, Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for the battle. But the image of God in battle is but one image of a God who is almighty. That is, no one can stop his power. Whatever he wants to accomplish, he does. There never is one thing that God sets out to do that he is unable to do because of a lack of resources or a lack of power. The fact that God is almighty is intended to be of great comfort to those who trust in him. Psalm 91 verse 1 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Later in that same psalm, in verses 9 and 10, we are told, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague shall come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And then in verse 15, God says of those who find shelter in the shadow of the Almighty, he says, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will protect him because he knows my name. The mere fact that God is the Almighty tells us that he is able to keep the promises that he has made. Were there some lack of power in God, we might assume that he means to keep his promises, but he might not be able to pull them off. But because his name is Almighty, He never has to concern himself with something he is unable to do, and neither should we. Of course, the term almighty means more than that God is more powerful than other powers. Jeremiah 32 verse 27 says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Indeed, just a few verses before that statement, in verse 17, Jeremiah affirms, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. In Matthew 19, 26, Jesus says, With God, all things are possible. What Jesus meant here is simply that God's power is not limited. When he says he will raise the dead, it is entirely within his power to do that. Matthew 3.9 records John the Baptist as saying, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Daniel in Daniel 2.21 says of God, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. One of the favorite images of God's power in the Bible is the metaphor of God's right hand. This in ancient times was the hand of power. It's the hand that a warrior would hold his sword with. 
Exodus 15, verse 6 says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. You know, from passages like this and, and literally hundreds more, a very clear picture emerges of a God who does whatever he wishes, for he has the power to do what he wishes. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. But here's an important point. Turn that psalm around and you will hear it saying, God only does those things that please him. And it is right here that we learn that there are some things that God does not do. Indeed, please hear me out. There are some things that God cannot do. What are these things? Well, consider Hebrews 6.18, which tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. Or James 1.13, which says, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 2 Timothy 2.13 says that God cannot deny himself. It doesn't say that he has chosen not to deny himself, but that he cannot do so. God cannot lie. God cannot do evil. God cannot contradict his character. God cannot act in ways that are unrighteous. Indeed, God cannot change what he was yesterday. He will be today and forever. And so it does no good to argue that God cannot be all-powerful because he can't make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it. That's merely a philosophical exercise. The God of the Bible can't act in a way in which he would no longer be the kind of God that he always was. He cannot limit his power. He cannot limit his goodness. He cannot limit his justice. And he cannot limit his righteousness. But when we say that God is the Almighty One, we are saying that God is able to do all that He wishes to do or all that His will dictates that He should do. Whatever God wants to do or whatever He wills, He is able to do. And when we come back, we'll see what it is that God wills to do. In our introduction, we've discovered that God Almighty refers to more than just His power and strength as often described in the Old Testament. This attribute shows us how God is mighty to accomplish everything that He wills, from what appears to be the small things that happen in our lives to directing the course of human history. This is what sets Him so much apart from each one of us. But there is much more to learn about how God is able to perform His will at all times when we come back. Thanks for joining us today. You know, in John 17, verse 3, it says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Such an essential part of our faith is knowing who God is, and it's a lifelong journey that we're called to embark on. Hopefully, you've been enjoying this first week of this series, This Is Our God. Well, this month, we'll be making the entire series available on CD for the special price of just $18, including shipping and handling. So don't miss your opportunity and order your copy of This Is Our God today. To order, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or go to backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Every one of us as believers have wondered about the will of God. If God's will determines all his actions, we have a right to ask what he wills. Consider the following examples. I will things that I never do. 
I'd love to learn how to fly a plane. I'd love to visit every country on the face of the earth. I'd love to have a condo overlooking the ocean in Hawaii. I'd love to put my foot on the surface of the moon, and I'd love to own a professional football team. And the reason I can't do all that I will to do is because, well, for one, I don't have the time, and second, I I surely don't have the resources, and third, I don't have the ability. And when we say that God is the Almighty One, we mean no more and no less than that God is able to do all that He wills, and that He does all that He wills. As Psalm 115, verse 3 reminds us, our God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases. I don't do everything I plan to do, but he does everything that he plans. God does not lead a life of, oh, if only I had the time and the resources for that. See, God is unlike us. Everything that he wills comes to pass. Everything. Nothing he plans ends up in failure or is left on the list of projects that he never pulled off. It makes no difference that God is almighty if in being almighty, he does not do what he intends. But our God is in the heavens, and he does all, not some, but all that he pleases. Consider how this gets repeated in Ephesians 1 verse 11. Paul is speaking of our salvation where he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You know, the phrase, all things, refers to all things in our salvation. But in the previous verses, in verses 9 and 10, Paul also used the phrases, all things, in another way. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You know, the nature of that passage teaches that all things are united under the leadership of Jesus, and that is God's plan. What God plans, he accomplishes because he does not change, and he has the power to do all that he pleases. You know, sometimes theologians and Bible teachers will try to point out some important distinctions that we need to keep in mind when we're talking about the will of God. Some Bible teachers like to make a helpful distinction between God's will of decree and his will of command. They point out that God may command one thing and actually decree something else. They'll also argue that God's will of decree is his secret will and the will of command is his revealed will. What are we talking about? I think it's best to use an illustration here. I'm reading from Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. You know, even a casual reading from this text, when looking for the will of God, sees two almost conflicting things that God wills. God wills that Pharaoh should let Israel go, but God also wills that Pharaoh's heart should be hardened so that he will refuse the commands of God. Now, yes, there is an explanation that allows us to see that Pharaoh can both freely choose to resist God and God can at the same time harden Pharaoh's heart. See, human free will and the sovereign plan of God are not in contradiction. But just so that we don't get off track, please don't let that question distract you from our central thought. God commanded Pharaoh to do one thing, yet at the same time decreed that Pharaoh would not do the thing he was commanded to do. And so for our purposes, God may command and yet not decree. 
God may command that all men should repent and come to the saving knowledge of Christ, but if he does not decree it, it will not happen. When God created the world and said, let there be light, that was the will of decree. And when God says, seek the Lord while he may be found, that may only be his will of command unless he so decrees it. See, once we see that, several things begin to emerge in our thinking. When Psalm 115 verse 3 says, our God is in heaven, he does whatever pleases him, the psalmist means to say that whatever God in his infinite wisdom decrees, his power then dictates that that very thing should come to be. But unless God decrees it, it will not happen. See, Augustine thought, therefore, it was very important to pray this way. He thought we should pray, Lord, decree in me what thou hast commanded of me. And by the way, See, I've learned that from Augustine, to pray that very same thing, especially when, you know, I'm struggling to bring my own flesh in line with God's commands. You know, if I struggle with anger or envy or pride, and I read of God's commands, I confess that I've sinned, and then I pray, O Lord, decree in me what thou hast commanded of me. See, once we begin to see that distinction, a great many passages of the Bible now come into focus. As an example, consider James 4, 13 to 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. See, clearly James is speaking of God's will of decree. The rich man Jesus spoke of, who, who spoke about the barns that he would build and the profits that would ensue from that, did not know that God had decreed that he would die that very night. See, once God decrees anything, his power will bring it to be. A great many aspects of the gospel are all about God's decrees. God has decreed that forgiveness from sins could only happen in the cross of his Son. See, we might think that our own will should prevail over God's and imagine some other means unto salvation, but God has decreed that salvation should be found in no other name than at the name of Christ. And God's decrees are always done. But when it comes to my own personal believing, I know that my heart may find no delight in the gospel at all. And so the will of command says to me, I must renounce my sin. See, my will gets pitted against God's will. And so the prayer, O Lord, decree in me what thou hast commanded of me, is the only hope that my heart might be turned towards God. Now, this power of Almighty God, which creates the universe, which rained down plagues on Egypt, that, that brought the walls of Jericho tumbling down in the day of battle, this power of God that allows his people to find shelter in the time of storm and that changes the heart of a rebel into a servant of God, this God is our Almighty God. Ultimately, when we speak of God's power, we speak of God as King. God, the sovereign God, who rules the world and in the end does whatever pleases him. God is not a frustrated God, often not getting what he wants. Sometimes we even imagine that we, with our will, can thwart the will of God. But I've learned a little secret. I may resist the revealed will of God or his will of command. I may decide to throw his commands in the trash and conduct myself as a rebel. But in the end, I have not in any way thwarted God's will of decree. For our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. 
I may decide to resist God to my own ruin and everlasting shame. Or I may decide to bow before him and submit my fierce pride into his loving arms. But of this I am sure, I'm only harming myself if I do not submit to him. And I'm only bringing a blessing to myself if I submit to him. I cannot harm God or his will. For God is the almighty God. Revelation 19 verse 6 reminds us, For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Whatever our God desires, whatever He wills, whatever He sets His face to accomplish, He does. For to proclaim God as the Mighty One is to say that He is able to do all His holy will. Whatever He decides, such is what He accomplishes. O Lord, teach us to delight in that. John, can I say something, and it might sound a bit funny, but, you know, it was almost more comforting when you were speaking earlier about those things that God can't do rather than what he can do. And I can understand why that would be, Uh, because simply to say that God is able to do anything, we might argue, well, then perhaps God might uh, withdraw the promises that he has made from me in Christ. And since God can do anything, couldn't he do that as well? And the answer is, no, he can't do that. Uh, God cannot cease to be all those things that make him God. And in being God, there are these attributes of perfection. And anything that is less than perfect is something that God cannot be. So, you know, the person that makes a promise then draws it back is a person who's not perfect. God cannot be that. So, you know, let's not, in our talking about God's infinite power, uh, make it sound as if God can be a rogue, for he cannot. And and I'm with you, Ben. I am very comforted in that. So um, let's not follow the God of philosophers, but let's follow the God of the Bible, and he will tell us who he is. What a great message to conclude our first week of discovering some of the most basic and yet foundational truths about God. We hope that today's study has encouraged you to continue delighting in the fact that God is all-powerful and sovereign over his creation, the world. His will for our lives is never thwarted, and we can rest in that fact. And that's why we trust the one true God of the Bible. Well, that wraps up this first week of This Is Our God, but be sure to listen next week as Dr. Neufeld discusses the essential understanding of the God of love and grace. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. As a national Bible teaching ministry, there's no greater privilege than to be able to encourage and equip God's people in their spiritual growth, but also to tell the glorious deeds of our God and who He is to many who have no knowledge of Him. This year, we continue our commitment to proclaiming God's unchangeable truth in a world that is ever-changing, and we need your help. Did you know that our monthly partners are critical to sustaining the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada? In 2015, people across the country rose to the occasion as never before by becoming monthly partners during our Partner to Tell campaign. There was such an incredible response that we met and exceeded our goal of 100 new partners. Now we begin a new year and the need and opportunity for ministry continues to grow. So could we ask you to respond by joining our ranks and becoming a monthly partner from every region of the country? Begin today 
Or for more information, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.